times. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 is where we are. In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the Ephesian church and the Smyrna church last week. I mentioned last week too, there is a, there's a progression of subject matter. So as you sit with human beings whether Jews or Gentiles, as they've responded to the gospel. They've heard about who Jesus is. They heard about what he did on the cross. They heard about his resurrection. They're hearing about his teaching, and they've heard about that proclamation to all, that if you repent, if you turn away from your sins, and you hold up that flag of your heart of, I yield, I yield to this man as God, as Savior, as resurrected, as King, as the one who is coming back, that he grants to you eternal life. Now, the Ephesian culture, again, this is is dominant Gentile culture. This is Roman, the Greco-Roman culture at its height in, in the Ephesian community. And the believers in that community, they're commended by the Lord greatly in regards to their work, in regards to their doctrine, in regards to not having compromise. But it's that one thing that we all uh, fight against in, in our personal relationships with the Lord and congregational relationships is we can have everything going on wonderful on the outside, doing the right activities, doing the right programs, doing the right works, being patient in the Lord, but they're having this this absence of real relationship, an absence of love. And again, the perfect analogy, you can sit in any household and you can have a, a marriage that looks fantastic on the outside, doing all the right things, look like the ideal American family, and there really be a, a loveless relationship, no connection between husband and wife. So that is a picture that we can all sit in. This, as Jesus begins his, these final words of, of um, encouragement, of warning, of rebuke, of promises to the body of Christ, at this time in history, these words have flowed all through church history and land to us today. He begins with the priority, the first love, the priority, the first relationship that we are to focus on in life is our personal relationship with Jesus. As men, as women, as as students, as followers, as children, the first relationship is not with mom and dad, it's not with spouse, it's not with children. Priority, first relationship, is Jesus and Jesus alone. And then, right behavior, right heart, right words flow out of that first relationship with Jesus into all other relationships. And it's beautiful when everything's in its right place. So that was the Ephesian church. Last week as we sit with Smyrna, and I told you, I've, I've resigned to the reality I'm only going to cover one church per week. I'm finally in agreement and I'll stop lying. But last week I wanted to cover both Smyrna and Pergamos together because they provide a, a very stark contrast. The reason why the church in Smyrna is suffering and why they're being tested and the persecution that is coming their way, more than likely the reason behind their poverty is because they've taken a no-compromise approach in their relationship with Jesus. 
And now we're going to sit in the church in Pergamos, and it's the exact opposite. So why is unknown. We can throw a variety of ideas out there of why individuals and congregations compromise with the world in their relationship with Jesus. But it's, there's a stark contrast between Smyrna and Pergamos because they have compromised. And this, again, I want to highlight, we are talking about believers. We are talking about men and women who have responded to the good news about who Jesus Christ is. They've repented. They've confessed him. They've been baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. They have been baptized into the body of Christ. They have been made new. And here's a community that's gone through that whole process, but in their behavior, whether it was from the beginning or over time, they're graduating or gradually getting into compromise. And let's listen to Jesus' words that he has to say in regards to the subject matter. So verse 12 of chapter 2 of Revelation says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament this morning to understand Balaam and to understand the, the rebuke that Jesus is giving, the warning that he has given to this church. But let's back up to the beginning here. So to the angel of the church of Pergamos, here's Jesus commanding John to write this letter to this specific community. Again, remember, these are dominantly going to be house churches at this time in history. You know, they're not going to have big meeting spaces like this, small meeting spaces. They're going to be fellowshipping with one another in the community in a variety of different ways. But he identifies himself in each one of the churches as he's addressing them. He identifies himself with some aspect of how he revealed himself in chapter 1. And here it's the, this image that Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Again, the, 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 uh, the imagery is in reference to his tongue. If you don't have a tongue, you are not able to form your words. So... The imagery is associated with the words that proceed out of Jesus' mouth. And again, these are the words from Genesis 
to Revelation, when you sit in the word of God, he's identifying himself. Here am I, the one who has the word of God in my mouth. He is the source of it. He is the power behind it. He is the, the, the judge of it between what is right and what is wrong. He is ultimately the source of all declaration when it comes to this when it comes to his word. And remember, when he comes back in Revelation 19, it's this same sword that's referred to that he smites the nations with and judgment that they're sitting in rebellion against him. And obviously, as we go through Revelation, the constant call is to turn away, to turn away from sin, to turn away from that which displeases the Lord and to pursue him above all. This confession from Jesus that he repeats in all the churches of his knowledge, he's there in the midst, he knows the work, he knows the works, he knows the activities. And for this particular church, they live in a community where Satan's throne is. So when you look at the imagery of a throne in the Bible, it has everything to do with authority. So here, Jesus says, I know where you live, and I know that the community in which you live is where Satan has a dominion and a power and authority that is above all else in this community. And not only does Satan have authority in this community, it also says Satan lives there kind of personally. Now, how much of that is just his doctrine, his influence, or... You know, at this time in history, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not in multiple places at once. But here is this being that is called the serpent, the Satan, the devil, the dragon throughout the word of God. He is the number one opposer, uh, adversary to, blasphemer, slanderer of God that we see. And this church, this community is told that they live in his seat of authority and in the place in which he dwells. Now, if you were speaking to your kids, what would you tell your kids? Move. I mean, come on, just pick, take up the stakes, get out of that place, and move. But that's not what he says. He doesn't tell them to leave. He says, I know where you live. And my authority is greater than Satan's authority. I'm there in your midst. I'm with you. I'm not calling you out of this place. I'm there to walk alongside of you in this place to cause you to be light. I mean, so we sit in our culture, oh, America's going to pot. Let's go find a different country to go live in. Good luck. They're all messed up. We want to be exactly where Jesus has us. If he moves you, let him be the one that moves you. Otherwise, you remain planted in him where you are and thrive in him, and he will cause you to thrive. So this is where Satan's throne is, and he's even talking about the persecution in this community. You know, they held true. 
So even like the Smyrna church, there's an encouragement there. That here's this man. The culture is persecuting the cult. Uh, the, the Pergamos culture is persecuting the church in some context to the point where they take a believer and they execute him. He is executed as a martyr, which means he is, he is bearing witness to the truth about who Jesus Christ is. And in an uncompromising way, he was faithful to death. That encouragement that Jesus gave to the Smyrna church. Do not be afraid. Be faithful even until death. And you have that testimony of this man Antipas that that was his character and his faithfulness. And not only just his, but the church as a whole. So one of the things that we have to be really cautious about always is painting this broad brush and saying that this is what everybody is like. Because what's interesting in this letter he is talking to the church, he is giving his knowledge, and then he has a rebuke, which we're going to sit in long-winded, but when you jump down to uh, his, the command of repentance for the church, he says, or else I will come to you quickly, to the church in Pergamos, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, it's, it's kind of weird language, like uh, Jesus is talking to the congregation in Pergamos, that if the congregation does not repent, that he is going to come to the congregation and he is going to, uh, what does he say? He's going to fight against them, those who hold on to and are teaching these false doctrines within the church. So there is a definite contrast being given in this community. The whole community of believers is not wayward. The whole community is not holding on to false doctrine. Many are holding on to true doctrine. But as a whole, the community is not dealing with the false doctrine that is allowed, that is being allowed to permeate and to, uh, like leaven, leaven, leaven will leaven the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. There we go. There's the quote. Um, that doctrine is making its way through the congregations. Even though there's many in the church that don't believe it, they're not practicing it, yet they're allowing it to continue and they're not hitting it straight on. And this is one of the reasons why I talked about Julie to begin with, and this is one of the reasons we're going to talk about Finhas in a minute. He is a hero of the Old Testament because of his zeal. He was zealous with God's zeal in his relationship with God and in dealing with the waywardness of the culture. So this is where we get into the doctrine of Balaam. Um, to understand Balaam, you really do need to understand the, the whole arc of the Bible. But we're only going to look at the arc of the Bible from Genesis to Numbers, because Numbers 22 is where the account of Balaam starts. And this is why we need, we need the major facts under our belt as we start to discuss what is Balaam's doctrine, and what is it that, about his doctrine that the Pergamos church is holding on to and allowing it to be held on to, and how do we apply that to our own lives today? So when you sit in the Bible, there is a God 
who created the heavens and the earth. And those first couple passages, those first couple verses of Genesis, you see God the Father, you see the Word of God, God the Son, and you see God the Holy Spirit there involved in creation. And we're told when God created, everything that he created was good. It was perfect. And then in Genesis 3, we're introduced to an aspect of his creation that is still shocking and surprising to me. Um, It shouldn't be, but it still is. But again, the, the devil, the serpent, the Satan, the dragon. And there he is in his character. He is constantly questioning God, standing in opposition to God. Uh, taking away from the word of God, adding to God's word, seeking to deceive, seeking to destroy. This is a being who is defined as hate, ultimately, in what he is. He hates you. He hates your creator. And whatever it is about him and in his own pride and his own destruction, he wants to bring everyone down with him. And Adam and Eve fell for the bait. They fell for... Uh, the twist, they fell for the perversion, they fell for the lie, they fell for the deception. And they did something that God said, don't do this. The simple act of disobeying what God said is what brought sin and death into our world. And now this is the world that we know. We don't know the, the pre-sin world, we know the post-sin world. The pre-sin world is what we're promised in Christ, that there is coming a newness. All this brokenness is going to be done away with. And when Jesus comes back, he is bringing with him what is new. And it's, it's, it's powerful. So he sits in that first sin, and God sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence, out of paradise, blocking that way. And then you watch sin progress in humanity. You watch sin progress to the point of the flood with Noah where God executed in righteous, perfect, gracious judgment, loving judgment. Again, God is always all of his attributes at the same time. You watch him execute every human being except eight through the flood. Again, you sit in the old... And what does that preach to you about the new, about what he says is coming in the future? That if you individually do not repent and turn from your sins, there is a sure judgment coming. And that judgment is filled with his wrath against sin. And the good news that Jesus has provided the payment to be free from that. That's what faith and trust in him is all about. Well, after the flood, those eight get off the ark, and humanity repopulates. It repopulates to this point where we all, you know, the famous story of the Tower of Babel, where humanity is building a structure up to the heavens, essentially glorifying man, denying God. And we watch Babylon in its, in its roots in the... Uh, false religion, false governments. And again, as we continue to travel through Revelation, the imagery of what Babylon was historically, as that topic flows through the Bible, we see its culmination and its fall in Revelation. So a lot of the subject matter is, is, is dealing with the same heart, the same attitude, the same rebellion against God. 
So in that, in the Tower of Babel, this is where God disperses the nations, confuses the languages, different people groups go through all throughout the world. And one of those people groups, he chooses a singular man. Who's the man that he chooses? Abraham, Father Abraham. Chooses Abraham out of his idolatry, out of the pagan culture in which he lived. I want you to come out of your family, out of your people, to a place that I will show you. So God chooses one man to reveal himself to, to give promises to, the covenants that he gave to Abraham, um, the promise of blessing, the promise of land, the promise of children. So Abraham becomes this central figure throughout the rest of the Bible because it's now focused upon his descendants. Ultimately, his descendant is going to be Jesus as a child of Abraham, as, as the promised one, as the anointed one. But when you sit in the rest of Genesis, you're watching messed up humanity. I mean, you sit in the stories of the Old Testament, you see all flavors of the human soul. And God has preserved these accounts for us so that we can know him, so that we can know ourselves, so that we can know our culture. There's really just fascinating accounts in regards to what it is to be refined by him, to have a relationship with him, to stumble uh, in that relationship, to fight against him, to abandon him. All these different accounts as you sit in Abraham's descendants. Well, when you sit in Genesis, at the end of Genesis, you have the, the descendants of Abraham because of a famine. They find themselves, the 70 of them, in Egypt. And then you fast forward in time, those 70, they rapidly produce. Uh, they multiply. God is blessing them. And over time, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, you find this same people group as the slaves of Egypt. And when you sit in the imagery of Egypt in the Bible, it is always a representation of the world. It's always representative of the cruel and harsh taskmaster that this world really is. You will never please that taskmaster. You will never have victory over that taskmaster. It's only through the miraculous intervention of God that we find freedom. And that's exactly the account of what the book of Exodus is all about. It is this exodus out of Egypt, out of that slavery. God comes in and performs all of these miraculous signs and wonders, not for the purpose of doing something, um, you know, just some random sign, but for the purpose of declaring himself to be the sovereign God over all of creation. You sit in this time of history as the people groups disperse throughout the world, the truth about who God is. So Noah knows the truth, right? Those eight people that were on the ark, they know who the almighty God is. But again, you get in, as humanity disperses and grows, all the twisting and deceptions, whether it's from the human heart or whether from Satan, uh, enter into those different cultures. So the culture of Egypt had a variety of gods. And as God comes in and judges this nation, he declares himself to be above every single one of Egypt's idols. And through the, this ultimate sign, this ultimate declaration of you watch God parting the Red Sea so that his children could go through on dry ground, and as they are being pursued by the enemy, the world, 
because they want them back in shackles, you watch God collapse this sea on top of this pursuing army. And there in Exodus 15, you have this song of deliverance, the song of Moses. It's, it's awesome to see. Again, even God's exhortation to, uh, to Moses and to the children of Israel, just stand still and see the salvation of God. He's declaring himself, revealing himself to be who he is and all of his wonderful attributes, which again is what we're sitting in, revelation, Jesus being revealed and manifested to us. So you get about 90 days out from that exodus, the nation of Israel is now at the foot of Mount Sinai. So this is Exodus 19, Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given. And this is where God, God's voice thunders. The whole nation hears God speak these words. And it was a fearful thing. It was an intimidating thing. It was an awesome thing. And God, again, saying that you shall be my people and I shall be your God. And as my people, you are going to be a light to all the world in regards to who I am and who these false idols are that really have absolutely no power so that my creation will turn to me and will love me as I love them. I mean, ultimately, the Jews were to be a witness just like the church is to be a witness to all the world in regards to who God is. And then you get into the boring parts of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. This is if you start reading through the Bible. Um, you hit Exodus 20 and all the laws start coming out. And it can be really confusing. It can be really tedious uh, because it's talking to a different culture that we're not familiar with. Now, all the instructions of building the tabernacle. You sit in Leviticus where it's all these sacrifices and this priest system that's very foreign to us. Uh, what makes it fascinating is when you go through that, always look at Jesus. What is this telling me about who God is? Because it's not there for just mindless, uh, you know, God's not just arbitrary in his commands. He's very specific. And every single one of those things is declaring who he is. For instance, the number two commandment to love your neighbor is buried in the boring text of, Exodus, or of Leviticus 19. Again, there's some, there's some incredible nuggets there. So when we get into the book of Numbers, now this is where we're getting into Balaam. So when you get into Numbers, the nation of Israel is still at the foot of Mount Sinai. In Numbers 10, uh, God is now sending them out from the foot of Mount Sinai to go in and inherit the land promised to Abraham. And in that, you have the, the famous story of God sending in a, a man from each one of the 12 tribes into the land to go and spy out the land and to come back and bring reports in regards to what's going on. And if you know the story, 10 of those guys, they're just trembling in their boots in regards to the war that is before them. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, Keep their mind and their attention on the Lord, not on the, the, the hardships that are before them. And let's, let's keep following the Lord. Let's keep going. But the culture believes, and in general, again, you can't do broad brush here. But in general, the culture is fearful. They're believing the bad report. 
Um, they've lived through this, all of God's miracles already as they've been out in the wilderness. They've been complaining against God multiple times. And God, again, God's always, he's processing the world out of us. He's always bringing us into positions where we need to trust him. What we see doesn't make sense. It's, it's crazy. I have no idea how God is going to um, undo all of this or give me victory in this. And in, in that, God is always keep following me. Trust me. And he reveals himself and he demonstrates himself to be faithful to all of us. But when you sit in those accounts, you just want to, man, those, those, what a bunch of morons. I mean, how many times do you have to rebel against the Lord? And how many times does God have to demonstrate his power and his faithfulness for you to finally get it? That's what I used to think. And now I read it with, man, Blake, you're such an idiot. When are you going to figure this out? Well, praise God that he keeps us and holds on to us. So in all of this, so is their trans, you know, they, they have the command to, to go in. They rebel against it. Um, God judges them, and in that judgment, he says that every single man and woman over the age of 20 that left Egypt, you're going to die in the wilderness. So that God sends them away from the promised land in judgment because of their unbelief, because they did not trust God. And that whole generation, it's their carcasses littered the wilderness for 40 years. And now this is where you get into the story of Balaam. Aaron has died. Moses is now leading the people back to the promised land. That generation has died out except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And in this, the children of Israel, they continue to rebel against God. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt and to be shackled into our sin and to, to, to die out here in the wilderness. All this constant complaining. And, and come on, be honest. You complain to God about your life, about the culture, about what's going on. He hears what you say in your tents. He hears what you say in your mind and your heart. We need to constantly repent of those things that God would always bring us back to that. Lord, I trust you. I don't get all this but I trust you and I hope in you. So Moses, God commands Moses to go speak to this rock. And it's the rock of Horeb where God provided water in the desert. If you've ever been in an environment where you are very, very thirsty and you don't see any water around except the water that's in your hand, you would understand you'd be griping against God too. Probably, God, I'm going to die of my thirst. God tells Moses to speak to this rock. And Moses is mad. He takes the staff that the Lord had given to him. He says, you rebels. And he strikes this rock twice in anger. And that action of Moses, that action prevented him from leading the people, leading the children of Israel into the promised land. Because God said, you misrepresented me. I'm not angry with the people. I love them. They're thirsty. I was providing for them. I told you to speak to the rock, not to strike the rock. And that act of Moses, that act of anger of Moses, this is one of the things, uh, there's a quote in the Old Testament, I don't know what verse it is, but it says that the, uh, the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Moses' anger 
at what he was frustrated with with the people was not bringing about God's righteousness in their life. Again, God's, God's provision. What, what melts your heart? What makes you wake up to God? It's, when, it's him standing there providing for you, being gracious to you when you don't deserve grace, being merciful to you when you deserve absolute judgment, providing for you in a way that, Lord, thank you. That's what brings about his righteousness when he overwhelms your soul and turns your attention to him. And that now brings us to Balaam. The nation of Israel has had a couple successful battles against the king of uh, Ammon and the king of Bashan. So the king uh, Sihon and Og are the king's names there in Numbers 21, I believe. Numbers 22 has Balak. He's the king of Moab. So again, these, this area, this is uh, Esau. His descendants are Edom. So Esau was uh, uh, Israel, Jacob's brother, and the division and all that occurred there in Genesis. Uh, Moab and Ammon are the children of Lot in that messed up story in Genesis. So you have uh, the Ammonites, the Amorites are the descendants of Ammon. The, the Jews have just defeated them, and they're now possessing their land. And now the Moabites, they're, they're trembling. They're exceedingly afraid is the testimony. So Balak is king. He decides to go hire a guy whose name is Balaam. And Balaam, Balaam's just a trip because he, is, he knows the true and living God. And the New Testament tells us, uh, Peter calls him a prophet. Um, he is from the area on the Euphrates River somewhere, so he's, he's out of the land, he's up north, but he has a reputation that whoever Balaam blesses is blessed, and whoever Balaam curses is cursed. So Balak wants to hire this guy. So again, you've got to sit in the idolatry of the day, and he sends some, he sends some guys to to Balaam with the, the payments for this diviner's fee. I want you to come down here because this people, they are massive and they are going to conquer us and I want you to curse them. So when these messengers come up to Balaam, uh, Balaam says, well, hold on, okay, I've got, I got to talk to the Lord about this. And that initial interaction, the Lord says, no, don't receive them, don't go with them. Because they have hired you to bless the people that I have blessed. And Balaam comes back to him and says, can't do it. So they go back and now Balak is, what do you mean he can't do it? So he sends people more honorable. And you watch this. So Balaam's, Balaam is a trip because he knows who the true and living God is. Yet he is filled with this compromise. Because he, he, he has God's answer, no. And when God tells you no, what do you do? When mom and dad tell you no, what do you do? Oh, come on. You watch, you watch the begging start. Balaam wants to do it. Whether it's for honor in the culture, whether it's for the cash, whatever he's got going on in his heart, he's not motivated through pleasing the almighty God who he knows. He's motiva motivated by his flesh. Pleasing man, pleasing himself, the world, the, the goods, the steam, sitting on the pedestal, whatever it may be. So the more honorable, there's, there's more people come, more honorable people, more cash. And, 
And Balaam said, you know, even if Balak gives me a house filled with gold, essentially, you know, I can't do anything that God tells me not to do. So Balaam goes and talks to God a second time, and this time God says, go ahead. Go with him. And then that's, this is the story when Balaam starts traveling the road that says God was angry with Balaam. It's one of those things you sit in the story and say, like, wait a minute, God, you told him to go. But God was giving Balaam what Balaam was asking for that was in opposition to what God's will really was. You want this? Okay. And in that account, this is the, the famous account where God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey starts to speak to Balaam and Balaam's having a conversation with this animal. Really, really weird. But the reason behind the story is you have the angel of the Lord who is always the pre, you know, 99% of the time, that is the pre-incarnate Christ. God there as the angel of the Lord, standing in opposition to, right? And here in Revelation, I will come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And here the imagery is the angel of the Lord, Jesus, with sword drawn, standing in the way of Balaam in opposition because Balaam was seeking to be disobedient to God. And then there's this revelation where um, the angel of the Lord manifests himself finally to Balaam, and Balaam is now in his right mind and trembling in his boots and is saying, I'm sorry, I'll go back. And God says, no, go, but you're only going to speak the words that I place in your mouth. And then the account is as Balaam comes, they go through this whole sacrifice process and come up onto this hill, and, and there... Uh, uh, Balaam gets the, the first oracle, this first prophecy from God to speak over the nation of Israel. And Balak is looking for Balaam's words to be words of cursing. And they end up being words of blessing because Balaam can only speak the words that God's going to place into his mouth. And Balak just freaks out because you just blessed him. I, can't, I brought you here to curse him. I brought you here to honor you and to exalt you to do what I've asked you to do, and you just did the exact opposite. And in Balak's mind, well, maybe, maybe God's opinion will change if we bring you over here and do the same thing. So he does that three times over, and Balaam prophesies these blessings upon the nation of Israel. And in that whole scene, you end up having seven different uh, prophecies that come out of Balaam's mouth in Numbers. But when you hit chapter 25, something, sh something shifts. Balaam goes home. Balak's still there, and all the, there's, there's, there's this weird shift between the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of 25, where the nation of Israel, they're now standing in opposition to God and in disobedience, and he uses this word is, um, they are going and worshiping Baal of Peor, so uh, Baal's a very specific, uh, you know, demon and god of this culture, um, takes on different ideas and forms is in different communities, uh, but again, the, the idea of the culture of this time was that a god was a very local deity, so he's called Baal of Peor in this instance. And what's happening is the, the hearts of the people, not all of them, right, but there's a segment of the children of Israel where they are abandoning their relationship with God and they are pursuing uh, a relationship with an idol, which is exactly what God had freed them from, from Egypt, 
It's, it's spitting in the face of God. It's spitting in the face of all the miraculous things that God has done to declare himself and to present himself to be the almighty God. And then they're committing physical adultery with the women of Moab. And in this, this is the account where you get Finhas. So it says that, you know, God in judgment of what's going on, there's a plague and it kills 24,000 souls. So again, there's, there's millions of people that, are, that make up Israel at this time as they're traveling into the land. But in chapter 25, you have Phinehas. He's the son of Eleazar, who is the son of Aaron the priest. Aaron is dead. Eleazar is now the high priest. And here this young man says that he is filled with the zeal of God. He is a, the song that we sang this morning, that Jesus would burn like a star. To light a fire in our heart. That was Finhas in the flesh. And this man, in his zeal for God, takes a javelin and kills this man, this child of Israel, and this woman, this Moabitess, where they had come essentially to the door of the tabernacle, to the door of the church, so to say, and flaunting the sin, flaunting the adultery, flaunting everything that's going on, goes into the tent, and this is when Finhas's heart lights up, and he goes and he kills them both. Now, we don't want to go out and kill people, but there is this zeal, this heat that is supposed to be in our relationship with the Lord. And that's what Jesus is correcting for the Ephesian church. He's saying, let that heat come back. Remember that heat. Turn away from your lukewarmness, from your coldness. When you sit in the narrative of the Old Testament, you go sit in Proverbs, especially chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs, talks about the adulterous woman and the warnings to the young man not to go participate in the behaviors of the adulterous woman. In that, it's not just talking about physical human relationships. The imagery overarching is in regards to humanity's relationship with God. When you step out of your relationship with God, God calls that adultery and all that goes and all that that looks like. So now you bring all of this imagery back to what's going on in Pergamos. The church is holding on to this doctrine of Balaam which there in that account in Numbers, as you get through the whole scene of chapter 25, we, we're just told that Balaam went away. But it's not till later in Numbers 31 that we're told what the doctrine of Balaam was. And this is, before Balaam went home, he went and had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Balak. He said, you know, I may not be able to curse the children of Israel because God won't let me. But let me tell you how to bring the curses of God upon them so that they can bring the curses of God upon themselves through their own behavior. And he counsels Balak, let your women go in and entice the men. And again, you sit in the, go sit in the imagery of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and listen to the sultriness of the words. But this is what our culture tries to do to us. This is what the culture was doing in Pergamos. It was enticing the believers in Jesus. Come away with us. Come have fun with us. Come participate in our gathering. Eat this meat and eat these delicacies. 
participate in my religion with my God, and I'll participate in your religion with your God. And it's adultery. So the, the direct word that Jesus has against those who are in Pergamos is you, there are some among you who are holding on to this doctrine of it's okay. It's not Jesus only. That's not the only way to interpret who Jesus is and what he's asking for you. Jesus wants the best for you. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be filled with joy. He doesn't want you to be like the Smyrna church. They're enduring persecution. You don't, you don't have to suffer. Come play with us. And this is exactly, again, this is, these are very, you got to sit in the deep imagery of the, the sultry words that drip off of the culture towards us that is constantly there enticing us away. Enticing us to not be heated in our relationship for Jesus alone, but to be passionate with whatever. God's gracious. He will forgive you of all things. It's only, anyways, we can keep going down and down that rabbit trail. You all get it. You all understand it. You sit in those pressures just as I sit in those pressures. And there's something about, I, I paused on who the Nicolaitans are when we were going through uh, the church at Ephesus. Uh, the church of Ephesus, Jesus says, I hate the works the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And here he's saying those that are holding on to the doctrine of Balaam, it also leads into holding on to whatever this doctrine of the Nicolaitans is also. The Nicolaitan, it's, the word means conquering the people. Balaam's name means destroying the people. So there's a, there's a link into what is being promoted and what is being held on to in the congregation. And now, again, what Jesus is conveying to the congregation, to the culture, the church in Pergamos is to what? Deal with the compromise. You who love Jesus, who are holding on to him, who are discipling others, who are pointing everybody that you know to a zealous, heated, passionate, Jesus-only life, don't neglect dealing with the compromise in your own ranks. And that is very hard. Why? You look, look, at, look at our culture. If you want to attract people, then let all not just come. We want everybody to come because we want everybody to hear about Jesus. But that come and remain as you are. Come and bring the world's ways. Come on in. Let's, let's all just sing Kumbaya together and everything's hunky-dory. That's, that's not the heart of God. And it's, it's, it's uh, we will be slandered. We talked about all of this already last week. To, to hold on to an uncompromising relationship with Jesus, it is very costly. It requires you to die to yourself. It requires you to die to other relationships. There's people in this room who have lost relationships, spouses, children, parents, friends, culture. Oh, but what's the gain? It's him. And this is why he ends every single one of the letters with an encouragement. What's the gain? Everybody who has an ear, 
believer or unbeliever, you hear these words. If you repent, I will give to you this bread of life, this hidden manna. Again, you got to go sit in the Old Testament. And in Exodus, God is feeding the masses. They're in the wilderness. There's no crops. He's feeding the masses with this manna. What is it? The bread from heaven. You know, it's identified as Christ in the New Testament. He is our source of nutrients and provision. If you overcome, I'll give you access to this provision, this sustenance. And what's fascinating, you sit in the, you go, again, you go sit back in the Old Testament, the, the complaining of the nation of Israel. They were eating so much manna, they started saying, Patui, I'm sick of this. They baked it, and they stewed it, and they, did a, they, they got bored. Has anybody ever gotten bored with their relationship with Jesus? I'm serious. Have you ever gotten bored with reading the Bible? Have you ever gotten bored with serving? Have you ever gotten bored with prayer, bored with worship? A whole bunch of life is boring and repetitious. Oh, but it's so sweet when Jesus is there. When I'm locked into him, I can be doing the most mundane behavior. I'm an accountant for crying out loud. Do you know how boring accounting is? <laughs> but I get to do it for a ministry who is aimed at promoting the gospel through the entire world. I'll be a cog right there. I'll do my part, Lord. Keep my attention on you. I'll give to you the access to this food that will bring you life for all eternity. Repent. Not only don't hold on to it, but we, without being jerks, we need to make sure that all of us together as a community that we're not allowing compromise in our ranks, so to say. And if there, are, if there is compromise going on, the Bible gives us very clear instructions how to love people, how to walk alongside of people, how to, how to rebuke, how to exhort, how to encourage to come back. You know, New Testament talks about if somebody's sitting in that category, send them out of the church, let them go, let them go play with Satan out in the world for the destruction of their flesh so that they will repent and come back. Rather than just everybody come in and be whoever you are and whoever you want to be. No, it's everybody come in and you and me together, we're going to help each other bend the knee to Jesus. And if you need to put me in a headlock, put me in a headlock. I give you permission to do so. Hopefully I don't need to be put in the headlock, but sometimes the flesh raises up, right? And not only that, he says, I'm going to give you a stone. A stone that has a new name that nobody knows. Now, it could be that Jesus is going to give to you personally a new name that only you and he know. Or it's in reference to the new name that Jesus has. So when he comes back in Revelation 19, it talks that he has a name that no one knows except himself. That after that point, when this stone is handed to us, that that new name of his is what is written on this white stone. And the imagery, the beauty of what a white stone represents, again, at this time in history, if you're going to cast a vote as a community... You cast a black stone for judgment, for condemnation, for guilt. You cast the white stone for acquittal. That if you repent, 
if you hear him today, listen. He will reveal himself to you as God. Savior, he'll reveal what he did on the cross to die your death, to pay everything that you owe for your sin. That is what Jesus died for. And he is the one who was dead, but behold, he became alive. The firstborn of the dead, resurrected, ascended to heaven as king, as our source of authority, as our priest. And all of that imagery, he is our access to the Father, to that throne of grace. We come to him in confession. Everybody who hears, come. Jesus, I believe in you. I struggle with my trust because of my flesh, but I trust you. I hope in you. I want to know you. I want to be just like you. I trust in your promises that you are changing me every single day as I yield to you. I trust in your promises for the future, Lord, that there's a day that is coming when you are going to receive all of yours to you to yourself, to be one with you for all eternity. And I hear that warning, Lord, that you will send away. And I am begging you in my heart through faith and your promises that when I stand in your presence, you will not send me away. That I will not hear those words, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. That I wouldn't play some kind of cultural, religious game. Lord, those areas in my life where there's compromise, where I'm holding on to doctrines, ways, things, attitudes, behaviors, that I know that you said no to, that I wouldn't be like Balaam, but that I would willingly yield to you. I look to you as the God who created the heavens and the earth. I look to you for my life, because I know that if I died apart from you, Lord, it would be an eternal darkness and death. I hear your voice today. I yield to you. I trust you. I love you. Those heroes that I see in your word, Lord, give me that heart to Finhas. I can't well up that kind of zeal within myself, Lord. You know me. Burn like a star, like a fire in my heart. May I radiate your love and your glory and your grace and your gospel every minute of every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>